0: forgot to mention that sign up for the conference is back at the information desk, if I didn't say that before. And there are several of those brochures. Please feel free to take one if you want to take one home and do some research on workshops. Um, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 19. And if you have one of the uh, Bibles from the rack in the back, that's page 541. Page 541. So if you're visiting with us and you grabbed one of those, uh, feel free to keep it. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love to have you take that home. As a gift. so page 541, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to finish uh, our time in Ephesus with Paul. As this chapter concludes, we see that Paul beginning to turn his sights towards other places into Rome and beyond, but before he leaves, we could say it, safely say that his time in Ephesus ended with a bang. and, and uh, we'll come across that today. So let's read about it. Acts chapter 19. And I'm going to pick up in verse 21, picking up where we left off last week, 1921. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only here in Ephesus... But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worships. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. God, we thank you for your word, your truth that you revealed to us to equip us, to build us up, to teach us, Changes. So we pray this morning, God, that your spirit would take your truth and work in us. Yeah, we could have the most polished of everything. Worship team and ministries and preaching, teaching. But God, if your spirit's not working, we have nothing. So we ask that you would do your work. God, every single person here represents different needs. and People are different place in different piece, places spiritually, struggling or feeling victorious today. Everywhere in between, God, the awesome thing is you, you know where each of us are at. You know what we need to hear. And you're powerful. To work in our hearts and change us. So we pray that, that we'd leave here not just having learned something, not just better educated, but transformed that we can better be equipped to go about the work of making Jesus known, bringing glory to your name. So we pray this, as always, for the glory of Jesus, the sake of his kingdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You ever had a place, been in a place that you were kind of in awe of, you you loved, like, oh, this is... I mean, for us, years ago, uh, my sabbatical, uh, we couldn't go to... I wanted to take my son to a Red Sox game. We couldn't do that. Uh, You know, I waited 20-something years to go back to... New England, bring my family there, go to a Red Sox game, and they're playing the Yankees in London. Like, what? Really? And then it was the All Star break, and a couple of days off, and then the, our time in New England was going to end. They were playing the LA Dodgers, but the problem with that was they just played the Dodgers in the Super, in the Super Bowl. That's today, uh, the World Series, uh, the year before, and so they, you know, they, they adjust ticket prices based on who they're playing. It was going to cost over nine hundred dollars for me to take my family to see the Red Sox. Well, we're not doing that, you know? So uh, we actually did it. the next coolest thing is we, we got a tour. Took my kids on a, on a tour of Fenway Park. So we did, and that's how you say it, right? And so we did, and it was, it was really cool. And, and Zach's big Red Sox fans, walking around, and, and, uh, and we're in the press box, and you're back, behind the scenes, and seeing all the stuff, and the garden that they grow on top of the, uh, uh, the, the, the stadium, where they, they feed like, the players from this garden on, on the roof of the stadium, it's crazy. And um, and then the Green Monster, we went on top of the Monster, and then you're looking down at all the dents, and I'm looking at Zach. I'm like, dude, you know the legends that have played on that grass right there, that hallowed ground, you know? Oh, um, so I don't have a picture of that, but but, but it was cool, Fenway Park. Like, it's uh, th- this was one of my favorites too. Uh, this is the Olympic Center up in Lake Placid, New York. I grew up going up there all the time and went to school up there for a year. And uh, I remember the first time I walked in, into this arena, and this is where the uh, the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviets in 1980. And I remember just standing there looking around, you're like, oh. You know, where Al Michaels had that iconic call, you know, do you believe in miracles? And uh, like, oh, this was it. This is where it happened, you know. Um, places like that. I have a picture in my office downstairs of me hugging the goalpost in Ohio Stadium. Um, I know it's not as big of a deal to you. I won't tell you how I got in there, but I did. And uh, I got this picture, right? And you're standing down, and you're looking around. You're like, oh man, how cool is this, right? You think about a place like that, and it pales in comparison to what this temple meant to the Ephesians in this cult. I mean, this was their structure. This was their everything. Everything about their life revolved around Artemis, the temple, and the cult. Their economy, obviously, their spiritual and religious world, their cultural world, their social life, their celebrations, their festivals. Everything revolved around this temple and this cult. Enter Christianity, right? All of that represented by its cult, that, that's a worldview. Their whole worldview is wrapped up in Artemis. Enter Christianity, an opposing worldview in every way, and what's going to happen? Well, we see sparks are going to fly. Their identity is bound up in Artemis. All of a sudden, people start committing their lives to Jesus Christ. Their identity becomes bound up in Jesus, and those two things don't coexist well together. And that's what gets us what we get here in Acts chapter 19. So for us to understand this a little bit, let's talk about Artemis. So I want you to understand why this was such a big deal. Here's a picture of her that was found. This is a marble statue. And uh, if we had time to really look up close to it, you, you see her standing there. There's these, these um, balloon-type figures you know, across her chest. Some say they represent breasts, probably not, but they do represent fertility. Okay, she was the goddess of fertility. Down the front of her skirt, you can't see it because of how small the picture is, but those are kind of like these gargoyle, demon-like creatures, all down the front of her skirt, all appearing to bow, and, 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 and seemingly bowing to her and her power. If we could see it, there are lions on her shoulders representing her strength and her power. So this Artemis was probably the most, uh, one of the most, if not the most, worshipped deities in the entire Mediterranean world. Today, uh, there are 33 shrines across Asia Minor that have been found um, in her honor. And that's just the ones that they have found. They've also found them beyond Asia Minor in places like Greece and Gaul and Spain. I've I've actually seen two of her shrines in a a city called, ruins called Thermosis, just west of Italia, Turkey and went there years ago, and Italia was built on a, on a hillside, this city, on a mountainside, really, and there's a temple at the bottom and a temple at the top. Both, by the way, are in ruins, right? Um, but that's uh, uh, how well-known she was. Coins. They've been, they found coins in over 50 cities that were minted with her image on it. Uh, she was considered the daughter of Zeus and Leto. She was the sister of Apollo. She was worshipped as the mother goddess, She was viewed as a nourishing mother who provided fertility for everything from the earth um, and the fruit that it bore to animals, to human children. It was all under her domain. Uh, Her worshipers considered her supreme amongst all the goddesses. References to her have been found first among the thrones, savior, lord, queen of the world, the heavenly goddess. She was a virgin, a huntress, the goddess of death, was considered an unrivaled deity held her in pretty high esteem, wouldn't you say? Um, we talked about her appearance. She was often identified with Hecate, I think is how you say it, the goddess of witchcraft, and Selene, the moon goddess. So she's able to exercise power over the spiritual world and the underworld. Her necklace that you really can't see is the signs of the zodiac on it, which meant she had influence over your destiny. Her temple... You see, there an artist's conception of her temple uh, was considered one of the seven wonders. Is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So we don't really see her temple anymore. By the way, that's all that's left of her temple there. That picture there on the lower right. Um, all that is left. Um, but uh, it was huge. We, we've seen the Parthenon. So picture structure four times that size. 127 marble columns that were 60 feet high. Some estimates of the dimensions of this building go as big as 425 feet by 225 feet. And just by point of reference, a football field is 360 by 160. So dwarfs a football field. It was the largest building in the Greek world. Their lives were represented and wrapped up in this temple and the cult it identified with. This is what they were known for. So you mentioned Ephesus, you thought of the temple, Right? It's kind of like uh, some of these places, um, right? Uh, San Louis, uh, California, it's known for the bubble gum that's stuck to the walls there. You mention this town and everyone's mind goes to the, bu- oh, the bubblegum place, right? Ashbourne, Georgia, the world's largest peanut, right? Oh, right, now, when someone brings up Ashbourne, they're like, oh, that's where the big peanut lives, right? Collinsville, Illinois, the world's largest ketchup bottle. And one more, Dublin, Ohio, the home of Cornhenge. Um, Right, so, oh, Cornhenge. That's in Ohio, Dublin. Right, yeah. You think it'd be in Nebraska or something, but it's not. It's in Ohio. Um, Yeah, you mentioned uh, Ephesus, and it's this temple. This is their identity. This is why sparks fly. Okay? So let's talk about this. Um, As the passage opens, we see Paul preparing to leave, actually. It's coming to the end of a long stretch in Ephesus. We know he'd been there at least 27 months. We know uh, he'd been ministering in the synagogue for three months and then transitioned and uh, for two more years preached and taught there. So we know at, at least 27 months that he is there ministering in Ephesus. So over two years have passed. Again, this is important because sometimes we read these passages and we kind of compress it all in our minds. It's like, oh, that whole thing with the burning of the, the books and the mentioning, you know, the initial conversation with the disciples there it happened over the course of like a week or two. Like, no, this is over two years um, between these, these, the end of the chapter and the beginning of the chapter. He resolves in the spirit to move on. Again, uh, we can't. We, we talk about this all the time, but but everything that Paul did, he, he he did under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, seeking God's direction in his life, and that is so important, right? Uh, we, we pay lip service to that, but that's often not how we function. Here's a great example of it, I, interacting uh, with someone uh, over the past couple of weeks wanting to get involved here in ministry at church, and, 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 and she emailed and said, hey, I would like to be involved in this ministry, and we kind of went back and forth about it, which is great, and, and then followed up with another and, and said, hey, you know, are there any other areas of need at church too? I'd, I'd love to consider those, so threw those out, and then got an email back a few days later, and, and she said, um, you know what, I, I spent some time praying about it, and this is where I feel God is, 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 is leading me to serve at church. It was so refreshing. So refreshing to hear someone just say, like, I, I, I I, know the, I hear all the opportunities, and, and I prayed about it for a few days, and I feel like this is the opportunity that God wanted me to pursue. I'm like, how awesome is that? Like, that that's the, how Paul operated. Like, Let's bring it to the Lord. Let's see where the Spirit leads us. So he sends the Spirit leading him somewhere else. He's going to revisit Macedonia and Achaia. And we've already talked about this in Acts. This is Paul's pattern. He goes back and he revisits a, a reminder to us that discipleship is a life, lifelong process. He keeps going back, making sure things are okay. Uh, Jerusalem, we find out here, is on the agenda. He doesn't explain why he wants to go to Jerusalem. If you turn over to Romans 15, we won't do that now, but Romans 15, 23 through 25, um, he he talks about why. He's going to bring another gift, another financial gift to help the church there in Jerusalem. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. And then he makes this statement about Rome, and you start to see uh, where Paul's pointing for the end of his life in ministry, the end game here. I must see Rome, and he uses that word must, and uh, that word is implying movement of the spirit. Paul says, this is what God is calling me, I I have to do this, and you see this play out later on in Acts, um, how Paul knew this, God God had communicated to this to him, he felt this leading. Uh, fo- the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Same terminology in Acts 27. An angel appears to Paul uh, later on to encourage him Don't be afraid, you must stand before Caesar. So the end game for Paul now is moving on to Rome. He could stay in Ephesus. can stay in one of these other places comfortable but paul is always pressing forward god what do you have for me what do you have for me and he's following the lord's leading and now god is sending him to rome and we know then from uh, from other comments he makes that part of his strategy is not just to stay in rome either but to testify to the lord there and then ultimately move on to spain paul has the ends of the earth in in view here he doesn't get comfortable he keeps seeking the lord in the lord's leading one side note I, I love about all of this is that Paul feels like he can move on now. Paul feels that this church is equipped and ready and that he can move on. We talked about this the past couple of weeks. Why does Paul feel that way? Because these people demonstrated marks of authentic faith. The gospel had been accurately presented They had received the Holy Spirit. They were spirit-infused, spirit-led people. They were baptized identifiers with Jesus, right? Their baptism communicates that we identify with Jesus. We're not ashamed of Jesus. We saw last week... They were people who repented of their sin. They had changed. They had outwardly expressed their faith. And this is why Paul feels ready to move on. And I'd like to continue to just put that question before us. Are we doing ministry in that way, where we're discipling and presenting the gospel and seeing the Spirit work in such a way where, not like we move on somewhere else, but we can can release people to ministry because we've equipped them and discipled them well. Paul's able to do that here. Before he leaves, though, a little incident happens, Right? A riot. (laughs) The gospel's impact on Ephesus threatens the worship of Artemis. The gospel's impact on Ephesus threatens the worship of Artemis. So again, before he leaves, the significant event begins to unfold. Now notice the terminology here in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way at the heart of this disturbance the blame is put on the way the way is representative of christianity of the church we could be described that you are the people of the way the blame's not laid necessarily at paul's feet here now we see as it goes on right paul's the one who brought the message paul was the one who taught about what differentiates false gods and real gods but I want you to catch this subtle nuance here. That the impact on the culture of Ephesus was not attributed just to Paul. It was attributed to the people of God living out authentic faith publicly in the culture. That's where the friction was generated. Right? This is one of the main premises of our message this week. When the true gospel is proclaimed and authentic, spirit-filled believers live out their faith, the culture will notice and be impacted. Right? The culture will notice and be impacted. The other thing I love about this, this church was two year, less than two years old, really. You're talking about people who came to Jesus as their Lord and Savior over the course of two years. These were young believers. Don't miss the significance of that. It says a few things to me. Number one, it says that the gospel was presented accurately. These people weren't just sold a uh, uh, like get-out-of-hell-free card. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, here's Jesus. Add him to your life so you have inspiration during hard times. These people understood that, yes, the gospel means salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. But they also understood that the gospel meant take up your cross and follow me. The gospel also meant repentance. The gospel also meant new allegiances. The gospel also meant life change. And these people lived that out so radically that it impacted the culture around them. They didn't have to wait until they got more mature in their faith, they didn't have to go to seminary. Sometimes we do that, right? Oh, when I get older, I'll make a. No, these were young believers. This church was a young church. I love You know, I needed to hear that this week. I, I'm sure that their worship team wasn't polished. That their children's ministries weren't all up to snuff. That they're doing everything fire and all polished and on all cylinders. They weren't. And if you want to know how we know that, go read First and Second Timothy. Written to, written to Timothy as he's pastoring in Ephesus. I mean, they're still in 1 and 2 Timothy working out leadership structures in that church. This is a good reminder, right? Because sometimes we get so caught up. Like, we have to do all this stuff perfectly and do it right, and we can burn ourselves out, and we feel the weight of that. I do. Like, oh, man, we got to get this right and this right and this right. And we do. We want to work on things and do things right and do things well. But at the end of the day, it's not about us doing things perfectly and having everything all set. God doesn't need that to work through us. He just needs us to take him seriously. He just needs us to be sold out to Jesus Christ. He just needs us to be willing to exchange our idols for him and be spirit-infused people who care about the gospel. That's what he uses. Everything else will take care of itself. That's what we see here. Is people being used. I used to love Bill Belichick. One one of the things that made him a great coach in the NFL for all those years with the New England Patriots was he, he had this this mantra. We don't have rookies on the New England Patriots. If you are drafted to play in the NFL, you're an NFL-level ca- caliber player, and the expectation is that you come in here and you play. We, we, we don't have rookies. You come in here and, and you, you contribute right away. Like that. That's the same thing. In Ephesus, they didn't have rookies in Ephesus. They were all rookies. <laughs> so let's just all live out our faith. That's what was noticed in the culture. Love that. So there's this Demetrius... He's likely the head of the guild of silversmiths. He's at the heart of this not little disturbance. By the way, maybe one of the great understatements in all Scripture. A not little disturbance. <laughs> it's a full-blown riot, man, right? The issue with these silver shrines that they made. Now, they, they found these shrines all over the place there in Asia. They've never found silver ones. But they found marble ones. They found wooden ones. They found other um, substances. They probably didn't find any silver ones because as Artemis died. Everyone's like, oh, silver. They melted it down and turned it into something else. But they found the molds that these were made in. And so these silver shrines, and um, these were what were at issue. And this guy gathers them together, and this is the catalyst for the uprising. It's concern, first and foremost, over their economic well-being. Concern with the loss of profit. Right? He's like, guys, Listen. The gospel has made such a big difference. People's lives have been so transformed. They're not going to the gift shop at the temple and buying Artemis statues anymore. Like, this is a problem. Which, by the way, you consider the irony in this? Like, the great goddess Artemis, but if you stop buying the souvenirs from the gift shop, she's going to die. Oh, how great she is, though, right? Like, weird. But that's what's at issue here. And And we see throughout Scripture, right? Like, what's going on here with these guys isn't new. Uh, money has always been something that gets in our way. I'm not talking. Rich. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. We can all be guilty of loving money, right? But Matthew, Jesus warns about this. It's easier for a, a you know camel to go through the eye out of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Right? Money gets in our way. Worship of possessions. First Timothy six ten. The love of money, not the having of money, but the love of money. It's it, when it's your idol. It's the root of all evil. Then Demetrius goes on, and and he cites Paul's message that God's made by hands are not God's. And Demetrius is like, Paul's spreading these lies. It's causing people to turn away from Artemis. I wish we had time to look at this passage. I was super ambitious by putting this out here. Look at how many slides this is. One, two, three, four. We're not reading all that. But write it down. Read it later. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. It's where God is, these two passages, that one and this one, I love it. This, these two passages are basically God through the prophet talking trash to the idols. <laughs> it's great. It's like, you know what an idol is? This, is? this is how ridiculous this is. You guys have fallen after all these idols. Like, if they, if they need to be moved, if they want to be moved, you, you have to pick it up and move it. Because it can't move itself. But it's worthy of your worship. Right? <laughs> you see the picture being painted here? Like, the idol needs our financial support through the gift shop at the Temple of Artemis and the idol needs us to paint it every once in a while and clean it, you know? That's what he's saying here. Uh, When an idol needs to be moved, when it falls down, they lift it up to their shoulders, and they carry it. And they set it in its place, and it stands there. It can't move from its place. If one cries out to it, it does not answer. (laughs) Save them. So we say, we're like, yeah, stupid Israelites, Ephesians, and our idols are exactly the same. They're going to die on us. They're not going to fulfill it. We all have an Artemis, you know? We all have an Artemis. What is it for you? He points this out. Fear that the temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. Verse 27. May be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia in the world worships. By the way, it's not an exaggeration, that statement, right? We rehearsed how widespread the worship of Artemis was. They're worried that she would fall into disrepute. They're afraid for the very existence of the cult itself. Can you imagine us living in fear that Jesus Christ in his cross in his kingdom and God our Father would fall into disrepute? Can you imagine living with that fear that God would fall into disrepute? I worry and fear about a lot of things. I don't worry about that one. But the Ephesians worried about that for their God. And rightly so, right? Because any God that we worship, small g God that we worship in our world, is going to fall in disrepute. Matt Papa said it well, music songwriter years ago. He said, it's going to let you down either by its death or yours. Right? Here's the thing in all of this. Christianity transformed believers is seen as a significant threat to this dominant and famous cult. The threat posed by Christianity then and today is real and powerful because it confronts and dismantles every component of our culture's wrong worldviews. The gospel's powerful enough to confront and challenge and change the prevailing worldviews that we live in. The friction caused by the collision here of the gospel and the culture in Ephesus results in a riot. So when they hear... Demetrius' arguments, they're enraged, and respond by praising Artemis. And in verse 29, you see that the, the violence and the anger escalate quickly. They grab Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's friends who traveled with him. They drag him into the theater. Now we know that that theater seated 24,000 people. I don't know if 24,000 people were in there that day, but the fact that the text says the whole city was involved in this leads you to believe that if it wasn't at capacity, it was probably pretty close. This was a scary sight. Okay, this was a threatening sight. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Acts, suggests that this may be and most likely is what Paul's referring to here in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He goes on to talk about deadly peril. I don't know if you've ever been in a riot before. I've told you before a story about time. I was walking in Chicago one night when we were at Moody Pastors Conference, and I had noticed a commotion around me. And before I knew it, I was walking, I'm like, I'm in the middle of a riot. Like, people are... There's right there, someone's getting kicked, and I'm like, I'm just and I just kept walking. But uh, that man, I remember fearing and despairing a little bit. I'm like, I was the only white guy, and 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 I was it was scary, you know. And, and um, um, and I just kept going, and I ended up being fine, but that was a scary moment. Um, people throwing things, and oh man, so Paul said, Man, I despaired my life here. Spirit of my life. It's afraid. This is a big deal. A scary moment. The thing of it is, in verse 30, Paul tries to go in. I'm gonna walk in there. You're nuts, man. And his friends told him that. The believers, his friends, they they, they prevent him from going in. It's probably a good idea. These Asiarchs combination of Asia and ruler in that terminology. These were wealthy uh, aristocratic Roman families who helped um, in high offices. So Paul apparently had some connections there. Some of them maybe had come to Christ. And they wisely dissuade Paul. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. It's a mess. It's scary. In verse 32 Luke is almost humorous. Luke is almost humorous. Now some cried out one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Sounds like some meetings I've been in, right? (laughs) Confusion. Fitting that there's confusion here, right? You pull God out of the equation and all of that. Fitting that there's confusion there. And it's not 100% clear why poor Alexander is pushed out there to try to deal with this. This Jewish guy, they push Alexander out there and um, the Jews, and, and, and probably the sense is Alexander's probably trying to distance them, the Jewish movement from Christianity. There was still confusion, really, in the secular world about the difference between these two worldviews. And probably what Alexander's trying to do is trying to say, like, we're not part of that. But we see here, when they see that this is a, a Jewish guy, they don't care. And for two hours, can you imagine? Two hours, they yell, great is Artemis. It's how passionate and rabid they were. The thing in all of this is that these people have seen the power of God manifested through Paul. They see the weakness of Artemis. They've acknowledged the weakness of Artemis, yet they still don't believe and convert. It's crazy. But we're a lot like that, right? Um, kind of reminded me of the Philistines. Remember the scene... First Samuel Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it in there to their temple and like their god Dagon falls over in front of it and they walk in there the next day they're like oh Dagon fell and they like stand him back up again and the next day they walk in again and Dagon now fell over and his head's broken off and his wrists are broken off and they're like oh he fell again you would think you know that the solution then would be maybe we should stop worshipping the god who keeps falling over and worship the god represented by this ark but what do they do? They're like, let's send the ark back so we can keep worshiping the God that keeps falling over, right? We do the same thing. Some of you continue to worship the God that keeps falling over instead of the true God, right? It's in 1 Samuel 5. It's the same scene in Revelation 16. These people in Revelation 16, they they see um, God working, and they acknowledge. They acknowledge that God is the one pouring out his wrath, And it says twice in this passage, they did not repent and give him glory. And it says again at the end of verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. These people in Revelation would rather mourn Babylon than turn to God. And we are very much like this. We see and understand many times that our gods are small and fleeting, but we'd rather hang on to them than to repent and turn to the God who can truly meet our needs, the God who truly is the one who reigns. They get angry and riot. I love Dave's point. Dave Lamb preached a few weeks ago at my installation service. And and Dave made this great comment because the scene in that city was the same. It was similar. And uh, it it was where Paul said, listen, stop worshiping me. I'm not the God that you think I am. And they got mad at him. They've made this great statement. He said, whenever our idols are attacked or taken away from us, basically we have two choices. We can repent of our worship of those idols or we get angry because you just messed with my idol. And that's what's happening here. They can repent and see God for who he is and Artemis for who she is or they can get angry. And they got angry. Well, The riot ends up being quelled by the town clerk. I don't know if he was a Democrat or a Republican. He's a great politician. (laughs) I mean, he's pagan, as I'll get out, but he's a great politician. He's able to step into this and and diffuse this thing with some pretty smooth talk. Uh, He starts out with hey, guys, listen, why are we so upset here? We all know that Artemis is the great goddess. We're the Ephesians. Don't worry about it. We guard the great stone. There was a, a legend that a meteor fell, a black rock, and that's, that, that was Artemis. That was the birthplace of Artemis. Um, we all know who we are. Why are we afraid of this movement? They're not a threat to us. That's how he starts to calm them down a little bit. And then he goes on, and this is really interesting to me. And to be honest, I kind of like didn't know what to make of it going through the passage. Verse 37, he says, Paul, this group, this way, they didn't commit any sacrilege. They haven't blasphemed Artemis. What does that mean? It's interesting, isn't it? What this tells me is that Paul and the church, they were really wise and respectful in the way they dealt with the culture. They were really wise and respectful in the way that they dealt with the culture. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on Acts, writes this They demonstrated wisdom and tact with winsomeness and boldness, with love and truth. Ultimately, they had done nothing illegal, so no official measures could be taken against them. Speaks to the importance of how we conduct ourselves in the world, doesn't it? Now, don't get this wrong. They spoke clearly. Demetrius very much understood Paul's message about what are real gods and what are false gods. So that message was out there. It wasn't like they watered the whole thing down. They spoke that message, and it was understood. But they did it in such a way that when it came to the mayor of the city, he was able to say, yeah, but they haven't disrespected. They haven't conducted themselves in an illegal way. I think part of what what went on here in Ephesus, Paul wasn't real worried about Artemis. He knows she's a false god. You know, it's interesting. Paul came out swinging. When people were misrepresenting truth in the gospel, Paul came out swinging. Paul didn't seem to really look. He knows what Artemis is. He knows she's a false god. What is Paul's main tack? I think it's this. He just presents the gospel. I think Paul knows that God, that Jesus is so beautiful and, and the gospel is so amazing and awesome that I turn my eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will just fade away. I think Paul understood that. So instead of, and we get this backwards sometimes, right? We spend so much time attacking the issues that we become known as combative and, and argumentative, but why don't we start with presenting Jesus and his beauty and I think those other things take care of themselves, Right? Like when we take our kids, our students to Brazil, we take them down, we take them to a place called Lassa Burger. Lassa Burger. In Brazil, it, the burgers at Lassa Burger, it's actual filet. Like this is fast food. And then they put like fried egg on it and like tomato. I mean, guess what? When we feed our kids Lassa Burgers in Brazil, I don't have to stand there and lecture them on how terrible Big Macs are anymore. Right? They get it. Like they, we're not going to talk about Big Macs. We've seen the Lost Burger. Paul's doing the same thing. I don't have to talk about Artemis. Well, someone asks. Let's talk about Jesus. And all of a sudden, here you see like, oh, Artemis. Yeah. I think that's what goes on here. We need to be done. A couple points by way of application. Be encouraged, the gospel is powerful enough to impact culture, Asiarchs, etc. Sometimes as Christians, we just live in so much fear, don't we? Oh no, what if so-and-so gets elected? Oh no, what if this legislation gets passed? Oh no, the culture's so bad. What if they take away our tax-exempt status? Well, guess we're done. I'll go work at Meyer. Sometimes it's really appealing too, right? Yeah. No, don't live in fear. The gospel transformed a stronghold like Ephesus? We're okay here. I love this quote by Schnabel. Um, what triggered the hostility of the silversmiths was not a program to stamp out magic or idolatry, but the faithful proclamation of the gospel by the missionaries and the changed lifestyle of a growing number of believers. Next one. Ask the question, what idols have captured your heart? What's your Artemis? Every single one of you has an Artemis. I have an Artemis. I have idols. One of the big ones for me is my recreation time. I love Craig time. Sometimes I like wine and I get mad when things infringe on Craig time. I'm supposed to be all right? My family. Family can be an idol. Right? Right, sometimes our idols are a lot more respectable. But these things become idols. What's your idol? You have one. Right? Tom, come on up. Be bold. Be bold. right? I think Paul exercised wisdom by not going into this arena that day in Ephesus. But the fact that he was willing to do it, I'm like, I wish I had that boldness. I'm like, yeah, I think I'd be like, last time I tried that, someone threw rocks at me. I ain't doing that again. <laughs> Paul's like, hey, I'm gonna go and They tear me up, they tear me up. The gods of this word, world will fall. Uh, remember I told you, I've seen the temple of Artemis. I've seen two of them. And they were in ruins. They fall. And then lastly, operate within the principles of legality and respect. Stand for truth and boldly proclaim it, but don't be a jerk about it. And focus more on presenting Jesus. Talk about issues, absolutely. But give the gospel, give Jesus first. Close with this quote from Russell Moore, his book Onward. By the way, you want a good read in an election year? Read this book, Onward, by Russell Moore. He writes this, A Christianity that is without friction in in the culture is a Christianity that dies. Such religion absorbs the ambient culture until it is indistinguishable from it, until eventually a culture asks what the point is of the whole thing. A Christianity that is walled off from the culture around it is a Christianity that dies. The gospel we have received is a missionary gospel, one that must connect to those on the outside in order to have life. Our call is to an engaged alienation, a Christianity that preserves the distinctness of our gospel while not retreating, from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. You have the power at your disposal and the truth at your disposal to impact culture. Surrender your idols and live that out. Don't live in fear. You have what you need. Amen.